Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Welcome to the 2020 War Room with my partner James Carvel down in Louisiana. I'm Al Hunt in Washington at American University, home of the Science Center of Public Policy. I want to ask you first to please subscribe, rate, and review the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to your podcast. Our guest today is a heavy hitter and perfect for this week. Greg Craig, one of President Clinton's counsels in the 1999 Senate impeachment trial. Greg, thanks for being with us. And think back 21 years ago, and before we get into the details of today, what was the atmosphere like when you're in the Senate floor in that kind of historic moment? Well, it was somber. It was serious. Um, it was heavy duty. I don't know how to describe it other than to say that it could not have been um, more fraught in terms of big clouds hanging over the building and um, important silences waiting to see what was going to happen. Uh, a lot of uncertainty as to how this thing was going to play out. Um, so I can't, it, it's hard to put into words the atmosphere other than the fact that everybody that was involved knew that we were doing something that was going to be in the history books. Forever. As you watched uh, the opening day, uh, did any differences, were you struck by any differences between now and then? Well, the interesting comparison to me was the arrival of uh, Chief Justice Roberts in the chamber the other day and the same impact that his arrival had on that on that group of people was the kind of impact that when Rehnquist took the, uh, took the dais and swore in people. Just the mere presence of the Chief Justice was very sobering and added an enormous sense of gravitas to the event. And we needed that back in 1998-99 because we'd come out of the House of Representatives, which was just an uncontrolled food fight, and we needed a little bit of decorum and a little bit of seriousness, and the Chief Justice's presence provided that. Well, and Roberts this time had to chastise uh, both sides uh, at one point for a lack of decorum, and the only criticism I have of the Chief Justice was he called, he said, you are in the world's greatest deliberative body. No one believes that anymore. But let me ask you this. Draw on that Yale Law School education, second only to LSU Law School education. <laughs> uh, but, you, you know, kind of uh, evaluate uh, the opening arguments and particularly that Trump team compared. Leave yourself aside compared to the uh, uh, Clinton team. Well, the Trump team hasn't done their opening arguments yet, so I can't evaluate. They've had the arguments about the rules. Yeah. And we didn't have that. But, but but they made a general presentation. They, yeah, I think they were taken aback. They were a little surprised at how well prepared the House managers were to argue each and every one of the amendments 
that Senator Schumer offered. I mean, I think the detail and the presentation and the professionalism of the House managers was very impressive in terms of laying out why in each case, whether it was the OMB or the Secretary of State or the Defense Department, uh, they should be getting these documents. And I don't think the president's counsel were ready with the kind of detailed response. And we, what we saw was a lot of rhetoric, uh, a lot of sort of stuff that we'd seen in President Trump's own tweets beforehand. Yeah. So I, I was not impressed with the, the counsel for the president's defense. Well, let's go back to, to uh, the Clinton impeachment. And now, so their house managers were Henry Hyde and Lindsey Graham and, and, and those kind of folks. And you had David Kendall and yourself and Nicole and Chuck Ruff, uh, Chuck Ruff, and Chuck, Chuck Ruff, who was a real hero in the whole thing. Uh, is it going to matter that our – look, look, you don't have to say it. I'm going to say it. It's evident to everybody after a short time that, that Clinton had better lawyers and that the House had more incompetent impeachment managers. So the, the matchup uh, going into the second day favors the, the, the 99 team way over the, the 2020 team. How much is that going to matter? Does it really matter that they have kind of third-rate lawyers and we have kind of, you know, a really good impeachment team? And James, you're asking what, a lawyer? What's it worth? Are you asking a lawyer if law- Yeah, if, I am. If, I'm kind if, of saying, are you, if, yes, what's, what's the war? What's, if, it run, you, what's it wins against replacement? Are you asking a lawyer if lawyering is important? <laughs> <laughs> the answer is yes. It makes a, a heck of a lot of difference. And I think in, in the Senate, in the United States, yeah, I'm talking about the trial in 98-99, they the House managers were crippled by the fact that they had so many people and each one of them felt that they had to speak. And so there was not a, a, a core of decision makers that made a, made a coherent and, you know, detailed and disciplined presentation um, in attacking the president of the United States. We did. We, I think, you know, yes, our lawyering, our team was far superior, but they suffered from the fact that um, they had political objectives. Each one of those members of the House wanted to be on the floor of the Senate during the impeachment trial and run for reelection on the basis of that. It hurt their, it hurt their case. So, Greg, I, I, there is really no dispute of the facts in, in, in the Clinton impeachment. And there's really no dispute of the facts in this. I don't think. I disagree with you. Okay. I disagree with you. In fact, there was a, a huge change in where we were in the House during the Clinton impeachment process to where we were in the Senate because they accused President Clinton of crimes in the Senate that he did not commit and that we persuaded the members of the Senate that he did not commit, and they acquitted him on the basis of that. Well, we did not concede, for example. We fought like tooth and nail the allegation that he lied in the grand jury. He did not lie in the grand jury. But, you know, that's fascinating because, and Jane, let me interrupt for just a second. Lindsey Graham today is repeating that case when he's questioned about it, that Clinton lied before a grand jury. And I want you just to go into that for a minute. He clearly didn't tell the truth in a, in a, in a, in a civil deposition about Paula Jones, no question. But he did. But, but he didn't lie before that grand jury, even though that was a charge, did he? No, he didn't. And l- let me just say that ten Republican senators agreed that he did not lie. So that the we were in the minority in the Senate, fifty-five Republicans, forty-five Democrats. They voted 
uh, 55 to 45 to acquit. So we picked up 10 Republican senators who were convinced that there was no, no perjury in the grand jury. So, James, I'm just picking a, a fight with you over the question of whether we conceded the facts. The second, the second article was the allegation that he engaged in obstruction of justice and tried to get Monica Lewinsky to lie in her affidavit, and then he tried to get a job for her, acquired her, and you know, hid the, and instructed Betty Curry and hid the. Uh, we 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 opposed that, and I think we persuaded uh, everybody that that also was not true. So we were defending the president on the facts, in the in the Clinton in the Clinton impeachment. I, I, I guess what I. I and of course, he never committed perjury. And, and as I recall, perjury is a very specific part of the criminal code, and they're, they're very the elements of it are very laid out. And what President Clinton did, as I understand it, didn't even approach that. Is that correct? That's absolutely right. Um, and in fact, if the people, the problem, and this is what I think you are getting at, Al, people get the Paula Jones deposition mixed up with his appearance in the grand jury. In the Paula Jones deposition, he denied having any kind of inappropriate contact. Civil deposition. Yeah, yeah. civil deposition. Whereas in the grand jury testimony, he fessed up. He said, I had an inappropriate relationship with her and on many occasions met privately with her. And, you know, um, what happened happened. But people get those mixed up, and it was very important. There were four articles, James, that came out of the House Judiciary Committee. One was alleging perjury in the grand jury. One was alleging perjury in the um, Paula Jones case. A third was alleging obstruction of justice. And the fourth was Lindsey Graham's favorite article, which was called Abuse of Power. <laughs> that was Lindsey Graham's. That's Lindsey Graham 1999, not Lindsey Graham 2020, Greg, just in case our listeners have any confusion. Lindsay seems to have gotten religion on that question of abuse of power in the last 21 years. Lindsay, Lindsay's theory was that the president of the United States, President Clinton, abused the power of his office by instructing his aides to criticize women who had made allegations against him, and that was an abuse of his power. That, that article did not survive the House of Representatives. They did not vote for that article, nor did the Paula Jones article. So the only two articles that came out of the House of Representatives and were sent over as part of the impeachment package to the Senate was the article alleging uh, perjury in the grand jury, which he was totally innocent of, and obstruction of justice in terms of trying to get Paula Jones to you know do these, not Paula Jones, I mean Monica Lewinsky, to file a false affidavit, which she denied, and he was innocent of that. So there was a real trial on the facts, and I think we prevailed. Well, so... The, they have the very good managers. Their lawyers are not very good. Is there any way you can see this case breaking somewhat in, in favor of the opponents of the president in the Senate? Well, I think it's not realistic to think that it's possible to remove the president given what's happened in the Senate. So let's, let's put our realistic cap on. And so I would try to def define success as getting 51 at any point on anything. Um, and if we get some witnesses and we um, are able to um, get some testimony from people who had firsthand relationships and com communications with the president about this, um, I think that would be uh, a victory for justice. But to me, the primary objective here is to come out of this um, 
showing that to the American people that the president did engage in misconduct and um, is perhaps continuing to do that and that there's more to be discovered as to what's going on. Yeah. Now, now you hit on what I think is the, the important point here. This is a moving target. So they're going to vote on a date on, on these articles. It, there's a certain body of knowledge that we have on that date. It is undeniable that more information is going to come out. There's stuff in the courts. There's all kinds of things. There's document requests. And some of these are going to be granted, and there's going to be some some information come out subsequent to the vote. It's it's my view that that that's a very much of a danger for Republicans because whatever comes out after, people would impute that to to what they did at the time. D- do you agree with me that there's a lot of information coming down? In, in, in the coming months that we don't know that we don't have right now based on just what's in the courts yeah. right now I, I, I couldn't agree more that the process will continue that the discovery of new information uh, you know people are writing books we're going to have more we're going to have more information from books that people are ten writing. days ago Mr. Parnas hadn't said anything that's exactly I right. mean that just I mean that was a seismic uh, revelation. Uh, and and I think I think you and James are absolutely right. There's going to be more, and that that you know, if I'm Susan Collins or I'm Cory Gardner, that must scare the lemon hell out of me. I mean, I can vote to acquit and everything, and then something comes out in March or June. Wow. I, I guess I'm trying to think back, Greg. In, in the '90s, I don't think we had that fear. I, I don't recall that. I mean, pretty much what was out there was out there. That's true. That's true. You know, they th- that's a. That's a terrible thing because most legal proceedings have an aura of finality about them. You know, once the appeals court judge affirms it, everybody goes home. I don't think this, there's no finality to this. I really believe that. And there's a lot between 9 and November. And the Republicans, and I don't say this because I'm a Democrat, but they have a lot more at risk. I think it's highly unlikely that we receive information that is exonerating to Trump. I think the real likely probability is that any new information will will be damaging and, and you know inculpatory. I think there's a hundred percent possibility. It's not a, it's not a close call, James. It's not, the new evidence is going to be damaging to him. It's not going to help him. That's the whole saga of of, uh, of Donald Trump, Greg. Um, Look, it's put on your put on your lawyer's hat in the sense that a lawyer thinks everyone is deserving of representation. And if you were stuck with representing Donald Trump, he did it. I mean, it seems to me it is absolutely clear cut. What defense would you try to mount at this stage? <laughs> Boy, um, well, I would I would um, consider, but. Re- Knowing my client, uh, I would probably not be allowed to do this. Mm-hmm. I would consider saying, you know, he made a mistake. He shouldn't have done this. Um, but it doesn't rise to the level of, of an impeachable offense. Right. Um, and he he would never, ever acknowledge that he made a mistake. And I would say he went over the line. It, it wasn't, it wasn't um, a, a serious matter. He corrected it. Uh, but he did go over the line. He shouldn't have done it. And he won't do it again. Let's go home and start all over again. And I would, I would say we're disrupting the country, we're disrupting the government, we're disrupting 
everything because the president made a mistake. He's not the first president to make a mistake like this. And let me just tell you, um, sir, that presidents have introduced domestic politics in foreign policy throughout our lives. Uh, he may have done it in a way that just went over the line, but let me just tell you, there's never been a president who has not considered domestic politics when he's made life and death decisions about war and peace. It's better than they've uh, the case. That, I mean, it's not it's not not right, but it's better than the case that they've made so far. Uh, and I mean, I, I really mean that. I, I put you on the spot there. I mean, the one thing you're right about previous presidents doing, but but I think we all would agree the one thing that we don't think president. Uh, previous presidents have done is try to get a foreign power to smear a political opponent. They've used, you know, sometimes very legitimately, they've used political pressures and political leverage and domestic considerations. But this did rise to a different level. Oh, I agree. Yeah. The the specific fact pattern has not existed before, but the general matter of whether domestic politics has influenced presidents as they make decisions about war and peace, right. it does all the time. It, it, it looks like yeah. their strategy is not even to question the, the, the basic facts or anything, but just say none of this rises to the level of impeachment because there, there, there's no crime here. But I actually read a, a very convincing piece by, uh, I wish you'd know the guy who was a big time Bush lawyer and stuff, that the federal bribery statute was broken. Uh, don't know. You know, things are kind of weird. But their argument is none of it matters because none of if all of this is true, it's not impeachable. What is exactly their theory of the case? I, I, I think their theory of the case is that past impeachments have always alleged a crime. And this is what Lindsay says. We alleged a crime when we alleged perjury in the grand jury. And that was clearly a crime. You cannot go into the grand jury and under oath tell a lie. Um, so he was his contention has been that here is the first time that an impeachment has been brought forward that does not allege a specific crime. I think that's not right. I think there is um, a, a campaign violation, perhaps, a bribery statute violation, perhaps. It's just that we have not, uh, the, the House managers have not identified it specifically by a, a, a label that is there in the Title 18 United States Code, Criminal Code. Um, but there, I, I think it's unlawful activity, it's wrongful activity, and maybe criminal activity. The number of prosecutors that I've seen on television who said, we'd prosecute this in a heartbeat right. and get, uh, get a conviction without a problem, um, is the, the number is so high that I, I think that that argument that there's no crime here uh, doesn't hold water. You don't have to. Then the other thing, James, is that you don't have to allege a crime to allege an impeachable offense. There's all sorts of conduct that is impeachable that doesn't rise to the level of a crime. Well, when the founders wrote the impeachment provision, there was not a criminal code. So therefore, it's kind of hard to say they insisted that it be a crime. I mean, our, our mutual friend Walter Dellinger says, for instance, if a president were to refuse to defend uh, the country against some kind of a threat, that is demonstrably an impeachable offense, and, and it's hard to find where that falls in the criminal statutes. So it's a bogus argument that Lindsay makes, but that's not surprising because all arguments Lindsay makes these days are bogus. I was thinking about what Dershowitz said that, it, of course, in 1998, he took, he, he took one position, and of course he's taking one now, and he was on television, and I saw a, a snippet of this, and he says, well, I, I was, I was, right, I, I was wasn't wrong then, but I'm more correct today. I, I, that's a perfect soundbite for a Trump lawyer. <laughs> I mean, it really is. 
You don't think you don't think Mr. Dershowitz likes to get attention? I, I don't know. Do I, I can't figure that guy out. I mean, I really can't <laughs> because he, he he's playing every role he can on TV. Now he's decided that he's the last defender of the Constitution in the United States. Well, he's the only one that's taking that position. May I say? I mean, he is he is a he stands alone of anybody who's thought about this or written about it when he says that abuse of power is not sufficient to impeach a president. Um, the the history is long and complete. Legal history, constitutional history, and precedent establishes that abuse of power, um, if if the Congress concludes it is sufficiently severe, and um, and uh, important and significant and corrupt, that abuse of power is a basis for. Impeaching and removing a president. It was a charge against Clinton. It was a charge against Nixon. A charge against Andrew Johnson and Madison and Hamilton. I I didn't cover them, but they 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 specifically referred to abuse of power in drafting that. Yeah, it, it is not following the law a crime. I, I mean, if you just look at the, uh, I guess it was a GAO report. Now, when they said it was illegal for him to hold up the funds. All right. Unlawful. It, it wasn't lawful, but probably isn't criminal, but I don't know that. But if if, if you're unlawful, I mean, it, it, isn't the basic thing is that you, you, you execute and uphold the laws of the United States? That may be the basis for impeachment by itself. But as I I just said a minute ago, I think that there's a basis for a bribery prosecution here. Um, look, I'm, I'm the last person to put a prosecutor's hat on because I'm schooled and experienced in the defense world. Um, but it does seem to me many prosecutors would find his negotiation with uh, the president of Ukraine. Um, you're not going to get a meeting with me. You're not going to get your military assistance and, unless you do the following, announce uh, an investigation, a criminal investigation of Joe Biden. That is an offer of a bribe and um it's While a, it's illegally a, holding up funds, it's it's a crime. Yeah, and then yeah, then the other part of it is illegally holding funds and lawfully not distributing the funds. I, I think it was a guy named Phil Zeckelo in Lawfare that that wrote an article where he took out the eighteen years code and specifically took the bribery statute. And when you read the bribery statute, the only element of the crime that you tend to look at is, is him holding up that aid for a return in, in announcing a, a, a investigation of Biden, a thing of value? Well, I mean, it, it clearly seems to me or anybody else, it would be, if that's a thing of value, he's, he's really, he's really deep into the federal bribery statute, according to, from what I read from Mr. Zekalo. And and he published the whole statute right in front of you, and it it sure looked to me like if I was on a jury and I was charged with getting the elements of it, that'd be the one element I'd be hung up on. Heaven help Donald Trump if you're on that jury, James. Yeah, yeah, an honest man trying to evaluate. Uh, Let me, Greg. Before this has been terrific. Before we let you go, think back again to 21 years ago. Were there any? What was your scariest moment? And were there any light moments in this very somber uh, occasion? Well, there were uh, there were a number of scary moments. One of the, one of the scariest moments occurred maybe two weeks, uh, two days, just two days before the vote in the Senate. Um, we were most concerned about 
uh, Senator Robert Byrd's vote and whether Senator Byrd uh, was going to stick uh, with the president. And uh, two days before the vote, the actual vote, the trial had been going on for about three weeks, Senator Byrd was interviewed by Cokie Roberts and said that he actually had been persuaded that the president had committed all the offenses that he'd been charged with. And we said, oh, if we lose Senator Byrd, we're going to lose half a dozen others right away. But he said the next day, he said, but I'm going to vote against removal because it would be bad for the country. <laughs> so that was that was a scary moment. I can imagine. Everybody, you know, James, you would probably be familiar with this, but a lot of people thought that this was an open and shut case and all the Democrats had to do was to stick together and the president would survive. None of us ever thought that this was open and shut and that we could take it to the bank. It was always of concern that something might happen uh, that we could un- that we couldn't predict, and that's why we actually wanted very much to get to the vote as soon as possible. That was the scariest moment, I think. Al, I, I like there, there are a lot of things that have done. First of all, the public is split on Trump impeachment. The public was not split on the Clinton impeachment. They didn't want to do it. Absolutely, that, right. I mean that's that, that's a fact number one. The, the the second thing is, at least from our side, we were able to trivialize the the, the underlying charge. Come on, you're really going to do this about that? I mean that that was really the, the publicly that was the strongest talking point we had. The only thing they can say is, well, it's not in the federal bribery statute or something to that effect. I mean the underlying charge. Is, is much more significant in Trump's case than it was in Clinton's case. Uh, and and the, the, the third thing, and we talked about this earlier, but the most important thing is once that President Clinton was acquitted in the Senate, that was the end of the information flow. That, that was a resolution to the case. Everybody went on and went on with their lives. You take the vote. You didn't take the vote. The consequences, et cetera. In this instance, the, the actual vote will stop nothing. There's stuff all over the courts, media requests, books, God knows what. And if history is any guide, and this administration has been a perfect guide, everything coming out in the future is going to be damaging to the president and, uh, and his congressional supporters. There will be nothing exonerating. I think that's a totally safe prediction. Greg, finally, just we've, this is heavy. Were, were there any light moments? Was there a light moment uh, back in 1999? Um, there were there were two there were two light moments. One was <clears throat> at the end of our case. Um, Dale Bumpers gave the final argument. That was brilliant. And um, when they say it's not about sex, it's about sex. <laughs> yeah, it was. He was quoting H. L. Mencken, and just the atmosphere was so heavy and so portentous, and so we were all wrapped around the axle. We were wired, and it had been somber all the way through. And then Dale Bumpers gets up there. And quotes H.L. Mencken. And H.L. Mencken says, if they say it's not about the money, it's about the money. And then he turned around and said, if they say it's not about sex, it's all about the sex. And the the wave of laughter that went through the Senate was like a relief. Thank God someone cracked a joke and we could laugh. We had permission to laugh. That I will never forget that moment. There was another moment where Lindsey Graham was attacking President Clinton for having two or three conversations with Monica Lewinsky in the early morning hours of the day. And he says, said Lindsey Graham, 
Down where I come from, when a gentleman calls up a young woman at two o'clock in the morning, he's up to no good. <laughs> Everybody laughed, and I looked over, and there was Senator Kennedy nodding his head. <laughs> Uh, Greg Craig, uh, uh, you uh, you have been a terrific guest, and I think that history is fascinating, and I think you really summarized uh, what the case is today. Thank you so much for being with us. Happy to be here. Hey, James, following up um, with that fascinating presentation from our friend Greg, our next guest is Jim Dunham, a Waco, Texas state legislator and a lawyer who represented Baylor students in sexual assault cases when Ken Starr, you'll remember Ken Starr, the sex-centered investigator uh, of Bill Clinton, when he was president of Baylor before he was ousted uh, for ignoring uh, uh, these, uh, these charges. Jim, thank you for being with us. Tell us, tell us how bad the Baylor sexual assault situation was and how culpable was Ken Starr, who, of course, now is one of Donald Trump's lawyers in the Senate? Well, I, you know, the Baylor situation actually still is a problem. And that's one of the things that uh, I, a lot of people don't know. But during the time Starr was there, you know, he came in about 2010. Um, and so he was there during a six-year six, uh, period of time. And we know uh, for certain that hundreds of young women were sexually assaulted while he was the president. Uh, we know of women that went to see him and talk about it. Uh, he would give them an ear and then do nothing. We know women that, you know, would email him and the subject would be my rape. And, uh, you know, and then since, since he's gone on, gone on to say, oh, I didn't know anything about any of these things. But literally hundreds of young women were sexually assaulted under his watch. And um, it, there was an attitude and of indifference of, you know, we just don't do this at Baylor. If someone is uh, the victim of something, they must have uh, somehow contributed to it. We don't drink here. We don't have premarital sex here. Um, and he was at the helm, and uh, he, he's done a he's done a, a job most recently of playing Sergeant Schultz on it. And well, I didn't know, and somebody nobody told me. And yeah, he does. He says he says nobody. He says unfortunately, no one informed me. And, and having been involved in this, you're saying that's just a plain lie. It's just, no, it's false. I'll show you the emails. I yeah. mean, there's emails, young women writing him subject matter that says my rape. Um, we, uh, there was a young woman on uh, CNN this morning who was in his office telling him about her situation. And he promised her he'd do something. And he did nothing. So, Jim, Starr says that he left Baylor under his own power, that he was not fired. Well, well, decision. you know, we uh, I, th I think you can see the transparent, you know, the lack of transparency in that. I mean, they 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 didn't want a confrontation. They removed him as president. They said, we're going to leave you as a chancellor. Uh, and he was gone within a matter of weeks. Um, and so, I mean, that's just that's just phony. I mean, during the time that he was there, they even had a, a large commission study, 100 pages that came in with wholesale violations of the Clery Act, which has to do with crime reporting at universities, and Title IX. This is while he's there. I mean, there's a hundred-page report, and if you read it, you'll see. So, what is the the legendary Pepper Hamilton report, and what is this? And because it's always been said that Baylor would do anything, that that report never see the light of day. Well, so th there's a couple of things. There's people talk about a Pepper Hamilton report, and often they're referring to some findings of the of the regents. And the regents did come out and say they had fundamental failures and some pretty, pretty uh, 
Stark report. And, and, and for Stark, you know, you come out with this report that said we had administrative failures, we victimized women, we used the code of conduct to retaliate against women, all while Starr was there. And for him to say, oh, my God, I didn't know that. I mean, come on. Uh, so when um, they had ignored this issue for years and there was an incident that happened at the Waco courthouse where they were prosecuting a football player and it got pretty verbal. You had a prosecutor and a Baylor Title IX official in the hall yelling at each other. It gets on TV and the newspaper. So Starr calls a Baylor law professor and says, I need to know what's going on with this trial down there. The law professor looks at it and in one week he reports to Starr that this is not an episodic issue. This is a systemic issue and a systemic problem. You've got to do something. And so they brought in the Pepper Hamilton law firm uh, to do an investigation. Philadelphia law firm. Yeah. And uh, and they, they did it. They got paid several million dollars, half a million dollars a month to go in and do whatever they did. And then it, it's clear at some point they decided we don't want to report from these guys. Um, and they actually, we believe, will show that they shut down the investigation early because they were getting into the conduct of the regents who uh, were very hands-on, some of them. And so they, they, they have this report. I mean, we can see it in even the Pepper Hamilton billings that, you know, drafting the report, revising the report. Well, Baylor, for years in the litigation, it says there is no report. There's no such thing. And now we know there is. And, and we're, we, we think it'll see the light of day sooner than later. But there's a hyperlink document. They interviewed 60 people. Um, and the issue that, you know, you ask, well, why are they, why are they worried about this? They fired the football coach. Well, over 80% of the sexual assaults had nothing to do with athletics. The issue was a failure at the top at the regent level and the senior administrators, not just with the football coach, but they fired the coach. And so they say, oh, the problem solved. Well, Jim, I think that's a really, I mean, as you, as you have pointed out, this was far more pervasive than just the football team. I guess the reason there's some focus on that is because Starr was such a football, he used to run out in the field with the team. And I, I, tell me if this is correct. He, he personally readmitted one football player who then later was convicted of rape and is serving 20 years in prison. You know, I don't have that exact information, but what I can tell you that's particularly troubling about his, his conduct with the sexual assailant issues, there was a young man that was working in his office uh, for him, a student, and he, they were close enough that if you look in the email traffic, he called him Uncle Ken. And this young man had four was a four-time juvenile sex offender, and when he got to Baylor, he applied for an ROTC commission, and uh, he was denied his security clearance because he had lied about these these prior events when he was a juvenile and there were young women at Baylor who had uh had complained about him and said he was a predator well he gets denied his clearance and Starr writes a letter uh to get them to reconsider his security clearance and Starr in his his letter to the uh Air Force or whichever one it was said well I'm not sure why you uh declined this kid but I want you to reconsider well the issue is is the the the, the the letter or the memo saying why they declined it is in Star's inbox from his assistant saying, hey, you need to read this before you write any letter on this kid. And you take that and you go backwards in time and you get back to Virginia and there was a school administrator and that it was guilty of assaulting five kids under 14. He and his wife write for leniency and want the guy to get community service. Thankfully, a judge gives him 43 years. And then you go back to Epstein, right? And so you go, why, why is this guy such an advocate 
you know, you know, once is sort of okay. He was a lawyer, but then you got this deal in Virginia, and that's like, well, it's a coincidence. And now you got him protecting a sexual predator on campus in his office. It's bizarre behavior. And then at the same time, you've got hundreds of young women. And, and let me tell you what, I'm not exaggerating. During a 20 month period, the, the Title IX coordinator testified that there were 416 reports to Title IX office, and over half of them were sexual assault. That's 20 months. That's two a, two a week walking in the door. They've been sexually assaulted. And then the previous five years before they finally hired somebody that had 25 reported over five years. Well, I mean, people just didn't start sexually assaulting people. All of a sudden, you know, they, somebody said, come forward. And of course, that Title IX coordinator got run off because she was doing her job. When you look at Ken Starr's history with sex and obsessions and stuff, uh, it, it almost leads you, as somebody would say in, in Louisiana, Texas, that, that boy is peculiar. <laughs> that's correct. I think that's the right word. I, I think that I, I think the I think the word that fits <laughs> the esteemed judge is peculiar. T- tell me, uh, uh, who are your clients? Who are they suing? Where are you in the legal process? Well, we I represent fifteen young women. They attended Baylor and were and their assaults range from two thousand and four all the way up to, to, to 2016. Um, and they're a, a diverse group of young women. Only two of them have to do with athletics or football. Uh, they're, they're, you know, young women that wanted to go to Baylor. They, they were young women of faith. They're very, very, uh, many of them are first time uh, college, you know, academic scholarships, really, really bright, impressive young women. We have been fighting a fight with Baylor on getting documents from them uh, for really literally years at the moment. But the case is uh, is moving forward very rapidly at this point. And, and the, fundamentally, the lawsuit is about an intentional policy of ignore, ignoring Title IX, ignoring the rights uh, of young women, and not affording them their educational opportunity. And much of... Much of that, Jim, occurred during Starr's tenure, correct? Yeah, the, the, the number of young women my clients assaulted during his time period is... is... Well, what, I mean, what's, I mean, to go to James's point, peculiar is, is I think, a nice word uh, uh, to use for him. He, he wrote in his book, which was, just came out last year, I mean, he still kept this holier than thou. He said that, that Clinton's shockingly callous contempt uh, 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 that he used women for his own pleasure. This is a guy who, who, who has that record at Baylor and represented Jeffrey Epstein, one of the worst sexual predators we've ever known about, and in April wrote a letter. Ken Starr co-signed a letter in April saying that all this Epstein thing is exaggerated. James Peculiar is too nice a word for him. Well, I'm, I'm, so, so Jim, are you a Baylor grad? Yeah, I've got two degrees from Baylor. Uh, got 26 uh, degrees in my immediate family from Baylor. All my kids are long. All my all my kids are Longhorns, and we almost beat the Tigers. I just want to point that out. <laughs> By the way, congratulations on having a number one college basketball team in the country. I, I mean, Albert is a big, uh, you know, blue blood program. You know, ACC, and it looks like the big, looks like oh, Baylor and Waco is leading the country. Number one in the country, huh? Men and women. Oh yeah, yeah. And your women's coach is from where? Well, well, you know, I can't remember somewhere, somewhere <laughs> to the east. <laughs> so would you say being a, a double grad and 
being involved in this, do you think Bela has seen the light on these issues of, of sexual harassment? Unfortunately not. I mean, you know, I, I think that my clients are Baylor University. These are young women who chose to go there. And the policy was being set by a very, very small elitist group of folks on their board. The board elects the next board. It's a very incestuous situation where there's no accountability. And uh, I think that it's up to uh, everyone to clean up their own house. And that's why when I was given the opportunity to represent these young women, they came to me. I, I said, yeah, I'll represent my university. And I look at it that way. I think we've got to we've got to clean it up. And, and you, you hear about these hundreds of, assailant, of, of assaults. You should know that the, uh, the people that made these decisions are still there. I mean, star is gone. Football coach is gone. And one or two minor athletic individuals are gone who Baylor has since uh, uh, apologized to. And all of the senior administrators that were responsible for this conduct are still there. And, and, and you just have to have accountability. You, you sure do, James. Listen, I, I, Jim, I want to thank you for being with us. This is really – I got Well, one go more ahead question. quickly, James. I got one more question I got to ask. Yeah, yeah. How, how much crap do you get from other Baylor people about, you know, Jim, you're just hurting the school. You guys got to let this thing go. Baylor doesn't need this. Uh, I, I will say I'm very proud of my fellow alumni and faculty out there and students because a week does not go by that people don't come up to me and say, hey, Jim, keep going, keep at it. The Good. truth needs to come out. I'm proud of the Baylor community because uh, they want to see uh, the truth come out too. Well, uh, you you know, it's, it's incredible what you did. I just wish Ken Starr had had the same standards that you have and the same regard for Baylor. Well, he's not peculiar enough for he doesn't. Jim, thanks an awful lot. Good luck with uh, your pursuits down there. Thank you. And now, back for a command performance, Christy Numbers Harvey. Let us have it, Numbers. You got it. God, I love when you call me Numbers. It makes me feel like a 1920s villain. Um, I've got two numbers for you guys this week, and I'm purposefully staying away from impeachment because I know that you are really talking to a lot of guests and have a lot of thoughts about that. But um, uh, instead, I'm going into some state stuff and then a little sports. So first for my state stuff, my first number is 22 to 18. Uh, This week, the Virginia State Senate voted 22 to 18 to officially get rid of Lee Jackson Day, which is a holiday that commemorates the birthdays of Confederate generals Robert E. Lee and Stonewall Jackson. And in its place, the Senate also passed a bill to make Election Day instead their state holiday, which will close a lot of schools and businesses, allowing more people to vote. Uh, These bills are now heading to the House. I feel like this is a long time coming, but wanted to see what you guys thought about this. Well, I agree with that vote. I was born in Virginia, uh, and um, I I worry a little bit about what I'm about to say because I think my grandmother – uh, you know, was looking down from heaven. We, we in our house in Orange, Virginia, not only had pictures of General Lee in three or four different places, we had pictures of Traveler, his horse. Uh, everybody in Virginia thought they were, they were related uh, to Robert E. Lee. He was a great hero there. He, may, he was a good man in a lot of ways. But the fact of the matter is, Christy, in the most important decision of his life, he was wrong and he betrayed his country. And do you remember, uh, I went to Washington and Lee University, so I, I know, know Traveler's Grave. So, uh, yeah, 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 you're in good company. Here. And, and, and we should not commemorate. You know, in my little town of Orange, Virginia, there is a huge statue <clears throat> for Confederate war veterans. And then there's a little teeny statue 
for World War II veterans. And throughout the state of Virginia, there are hundreds and hundreds of Confederate war memorials and, and just a handful of World War II memorials. I would say those Virginians who died in World War II <clears throat> were, more pa- <clears throat> were more patriotic. This is overdue, uh, and uh, I'll, I'll praise the Virginia House. I'm with you. How about you, James? Yeah, I, look, I'm so into this uh, down here. I also have a place right. in Shenandoah Valley. My house was a, a hospital during the Civil War. Uh, and it, Virginia's just a completely changed state. And the parts of it that were, you know, longing for the old Confederacy now have lost that sort of political power. And even out in those parts of the state, it's you, you can feel it starting to lessen. The, the, the hole at the, the lost cause, the, the jubile early myth has on people. Uh, it's a long time coming and it's going to come more. We're going to see more of this over the coming years and it'll be a good thing. Well, I'll keep an eye on what happens once it gets to the house and, and let you guys know if you don't see it first. I got one other quick number um, and that's 396. That is the number of Hall of Fame ballots out of 397 that Derek Jeter got for the Hall of Fame, leaving him one short of the all-time vote record. Um, But I'm going to nerd out for a second. You know what's even more interesting to me is that the inductions are on July 26th. They're also inducting a guy named Marvin Miller, who is a union leader who helped to revolutionize baseball by getting players into players unions and uh, winning them the right to free agency. And I just think that's really cool that they are actually inducting uh, a union leader to mark that, uh, how important labor unions are. What do you guys think? Are you following the, uh, the hall of fame? Yes. It's long due. I mean, his influence on the the game of baseball is profound. (laughs) Totally. Yeah, Absolutely. Uh, Hunt, how were you on that non-unanimous uh, vote there? Oh, you know, there's a jerk in every crowd, I suppose. Uh, <laughs> can you imagine not 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 voting for Derek Jeter? I mean, you, you know, you'd have to be peculiar, to coin a phrase, uh, <clears throat> to do that. <clears throat> Marvin Miller and Kurt Flood, I think, were two of the right. really seminal people in changing the sport of baseball for the better. And uh, they, uh, uh, this is this is overdue, but. Thank goodness, July 26th, we all ought to celebrate Marvin Miller. We sure should. All right, those are my numbers. You guys got anything for me? I have a, I, I have James, a number. James right. has a number. 60. I'll tell you where it's important. LSU played 15 games, 15 times four, 60. That's 60 quarters. Joe Barra had 60 touchdown passes. Oh, my One gosh. for every quarter. That's amazing. He had six interceptions all year. He had a 10-to-1 touchdown over interception ratio. It is simply the greatest season any football player has had in the history of college football. Christy, my dream is that we're going to be doing this program five, ten years from now, and James is still going to have data about the most remarkable football team of all times, the 2019 Tigers. It is highly likely. James, James, I'm going to go. First of all, first of all, you get to go. I mean, you know, you'll always celebrate that team, but you get to celebrate something else now. You get to see Zion Williamson in his opening game. Well, look, I, I, it, by the way, our basketball team is 25 of the last 27, I think, in the conference. But but there's some about Derek Jeter I heard yesterday that, that bears repeating. He was on teams that won 11 straight postseason series. That That's staggering when you stop and you think about it. Now, I know when Babe Ruth played and Ted Williams played, you, you won the National League, you won the American League, you, you only had one postseason series. But 11, and us as intense Washington Nationals fans, 
know how hard it is to win a playoff series. To be on a team that won 11 in a row, to a baseball fan, that's really impressive. Let's find that guy uh, that voted against him. You're absolutely right. James, you, you are gonna, you're going to love Zion Williamson. And speaking of basketball, the American University Eagles, our home right here, they're on a two-game win streak. Big game against Colgate on Saturday. A lot of tension up Get here, the James. Colgate toothbrushes. We have to. Absolutely. <laughs> uh, go, go, Eagles. And we want to get those women Eagles back on the winning track, too. Listen, thanks for listening to The War Room. If you enjoy the podcast anywhere near as much as we love doing it, please subscribe, rate, and review on Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, uh, or wherever you get your podcast. For James Carville, I'm Al Hunt. We'll talk to you next week. Thanks. Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you, with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.